Liverpool 3 0. Call it, take it quickly, Origi! Three goals for Liverpool, 100 goals for Mo Salah and a visit from AC Milan in the Champions League coming up for the Reds. Welcome to the Anfield Central podcast. We're back after the international break. As ever, I'm your host, Luke, and today I'm joined just by Max as James is still on his holiday. So Max, how's it going? He's abandoned us and quite frankly, yeah. I'm furious, um, but I'm well. I'm well. Good to um, I tell you what, a trip to Leeds United and playing at AC Milan in the Champions League, I feel like it's 2004. Um, yeah, it's very, very throwbacky, isn't it? it? Yeah, it's a very throwbacky sort of fixture list. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Like, if I look at this Champions League group, and it's a very prestigious group. Um, yeah. You know, there's no. There's no small names in there, and there's no real favourite, I would say. I mean, you'd probably group Milan and Porto together and Liverpool at Let's Go together in the favourites, yeah. but it's tight. Like, you know, if one of the two favourites drops out and one of the other two comes in, um, makes it in the top two, it wouldn't be like, you know, massive shock horror kind of thing either. Yeah, and I guess... Porto are probably the team you'd label as the weakest, but which is saying just, you know, that says a lot about the strength of the group because traditionally they're kind of a staple knockout team more often than not, aren't they? So it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. But before we get on to all the Champions League chat, which we will have plenty of time for later in the show, let's focus on the Premier League action that we saw on the weekend. A 3-0 win for Liverpool away at Elland Road. A great performance, really, I think we'd all agree. But... The big main takeaway and the big story from the match was sadly an, an injury to, to young Harvey Elliott, who, you know, he started the season absolutely fantastically for my money and he's looked quite at home in that Liverpool midfield. Um, it's, it's not it's not great to start on a negative, but I guess it's the biggest story of the weekend, Max. Just how disappointed are you about the injury and how big a blow is it for, for young Harvey? Yeah, I'm devastated about the injury. Um, I've been talking about Harvey Elliott basically since we signed him, and it's been very nice to be vindicated um, at the start of the of this season. He's just carried the ball so well. His chemistry with Mohamed Salah is there for all to see. I love how he's adapted to that advanced eight role and how he carries the ball from midfield. Yeah. It's something that hasn't really been a strength of ours for the last couple of years. Um, the last person to really do it effectively and consistently was Oxlade Chamberlain in his first season. Um, yeah. Elliot's quite a different player. He's not as direct as Ox is. He's a little more, um, you know, into sort of cute flicks and passes and that sort of thing rather than like driving runs to shoot. But, you know, it's still, well, that carrying the ball is how he got injured. Um you know, trying to make that dribble from deep and lead the counter-attack. And um, Strauch, um, yeah, it was... I mean, like, I don't I don't think for a second that Strauch meant to hurt him or anything no, like that. Yeah, like, I don't think anyone like, I, I think it was just a... It was, as Elliot himself had said and Strauch had said, it's just a very unfortunate accident. Yeah. Um, which can happen. I like we'll get we'll get into this later, I'm sure. But this is why I have a big issue with tackles from behind. I know that he sort of reached round the side, but he was coming from behind him, 
and his trailing leg was coming through. And I just, yeah, I have an issue with it. Yeah, it's a really, really difficult one because I can see both both sides to the to the argument. Obviously, there's a lot of debate on social media, as there always is, and on you know on the television um, highlights. I think the consensus of the guys who are doing the game, which was Jamie Redknapp and, and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank here in the UK, who were covering the game, they both were kind of saying they didn't think it was a red card, um, but due to the severity. Of the injury, obviously, at the time of recording, we've just been told it's a dislocated ankle and he'll be having surgery in London. I think that was meant to happen today on, on Tuesday as we record. The guys on Sky and, and I think on social media were saying that they didn't think it was necessarily a red card, but due to the type of injury it was and the, you know the, the awful scenes of him basically in so much pain. And we saw Mo Salah's reaction and one or two others of the Liverpool squad looking really pretty traumatised and Klopp was pretty emotional, wasn't he, in the, in the interview after the game? Do you think it is that it was basically because of the severity of the injury the red card was given? And if if he wasn't injured, Strauch would not have, have been sent off. Leeds today have appealed the sending off. Um, and there was another similar kind of tackle Liam Cooper made didn't he, um, in the match that obviously wasn't penalised quite as harshly. Do you think it's it was a red card, first of all? It's hard to say. I mean, I think the tackle it most reminds me of is Son on Gomez. Um, when Son, I mean, like he did, he didn't. It, it was quite weird. He sort of hit Gomez, who then tripped and and hurt himself. It was quite weird. It wasn't actually Son's impact that broke his leg. I don't think. Yeah. Um, and it was similar in a, in the way that I. I, I, I can see the argument for him going off, not only because of the injury, but also because he does come off his feet in the um, in the tackle. Um, I mean, you know, it's not like a flying two-footer kind of thing. It's not a Roy Keane-style challenge. Um, but, you know, it's... I can see the argument. I don't think it's a red, personally, in terms of the challenge as an isolated... Um, incident, not taking into account the wider context of it. And I think also because Harvey Elliott is such a young kid, I think that probably would have um, had an influence on the referee's decision as well. However, as I said before, I have an issue with uh, with tackles from behind like that because the thing is, and I understand that you know, football is a contact sport. I've had serious injuries coming from football. I think a lot of people who play the sport have. Um, and that can just happen with an accident. But if you tackle from behind like that, I saw people saying, where is Strout going to put his trailing leg? That's the exact point. When you make a challenge like that, it's different to, if you make a big heavy challenge from the side or from the front, the opposition player can knows that challenge is coming and can prepare themselves for the impact and think about where they're going to put their feet. Whereas Elliot has got no idea where to put his feet. And if your leg, like Strauss, gets on top of or around his ankle, then you are asking for a serious injury to happen. And I don't really know how you rule it out because does it technically endanger him? No, because it takes Elliot putting, like, obviously not through any fault of his own, but it takes Elliot putting his leg in the wrong place for it to be dangerous. But if there's no 
ability for Elliot to think about where he's putting his feet, then you're taking your risk of doing that by making that kind of tackle. I just think that sometimes players have just got to be a bit more sensible and not think, oh, it's within the rules, therefore I can do it. Think to yourself, do you tub the guy's shirt, take a yellow or something like that, and, you know, everyone comes out healthily, or do you leap from behind and risk, you know, really hurting not just them but yourself what if Elliot come what if Elliot's boot comes down on Strauss ankle or Achilles or something like that when he's not looking where his feet are going like that sort of tackle is just a way to get injured either for yourself or the person who's getting tackled so I don't really know what the uh rule change would have to be surrounding it because you can't just rule out any tackle from behind because it depends on context but yeah, I just think that players need to be a bit wiser in the sort of challenges that they're making. But it's very easy to say that when you're, you know, sitting outside of the game and you're not in the sort of bowl of atmosphere that is Ellen Road. So, yeah, it's difficult. I, I feel for, obviously, I feel most for Elliot because, you know, I can't imagine yeah, how painful that would be. Um, yeah. Luckily, I haven't dislocated my ankle before. Um and but I feel for Strauss as well because he's he's also you know he's fairly inexperienced and um he yeah like he didn't deserve a lot of the hate that came off and I think when you I mean like I was angry at first when um when it happened and I think any fan is when they see a player like that go down but when you take yourself out of here at the moment, he doesn't mean to do it. It's an accident. Like, and he he obviously feels awful about it. And Elliot's come out in defense of him as well. And credit to the young lad for that. Yeah, Elliot's came, I think, early when Liverpool signed him. Obviously, we need to remember he's still 18 years old, but I think Liverpool signed him when he was six, 16. Um, there was a few bits and bobs on social media about him maybe being a bit immature. We saw him getting a little bit of trouble with the FA, didn't we, for an impersonation of um, Harry Kane. But I think maybe it's being around the likes of Virgil van Dijk or Mo Salah or Jordan Henderson on a regular basis. But he seems to have really matured recently. And I think over the weekend we saw him, you know, on social media. He's obviously massively invested in Liverpool and invested in the team. We saw him giving his shirt and his boots to kids in in the in the, in the hospital he was in in Leeds and we've seen him come out and defend um, Pascal um, Strauch as well as you say there so I think he's come out of a lot of credit so fingers crossed he can kind of get back to where he was really it's his his career's not really even got going so it's such a awful injury to happen at this stage of his career and I guess the obvious parallel would be like someone like Aaron Ramsey when he was at Arsenal. He had obviously had that horrific injury against Stoke and he came back and has had a more than respectable career at Arsenal and Juventus. So just fingers crossed that mentally and physically, when he does come back, whenever that may be, we've got no time scale at present. He can kind of just pick up where he left off because he was looking really promising, um, I think, before that. Obviously, onto the football itself, and it, it was a 3-0 win for Liverpool. Um, comfortable in the end, I guess I guess you'd say. And the season, and um, the game, sorry, was started with a Mo Salah goal, which we're all used to seeing now. That's 100 in the Premier League for him. He just keeps on scoring, as, as you'd expect him to. Um, he's currently in talks for a new contract. I believe there's not much news on what that will be, but just you know, how important is it that Liverpool tie him down? Because... At a period in the club's history where maybe there's some question marks over Firmino and Mane potentially, 
Salah really just keeps on delivering. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty hard to argue that he isn't the best right winger that we've had in Premier League history, like, yeah. or best attacker we've had. Like, he, him, Suarez and Torres, Fowler, Owen, those are the five. And Salah's got mm. a very good argument for being number one. I personally don't think he is, but the argument is there. Um, who would you have, who, out of interest, who would you, you have as number one? Because I always think the impressive thing about Salah is, and like those other four, he doesn't play out-and-out striker. He plays, on the, like you say, on the, on the right. So to have that number of goals at this stage, and he's like the fifth fastest to get to 100 goals in Premier League history as a winger, essentially. I just don't know who, who do you think is better. Would you have ahead of that? I, I personally would have Suarez as my number one. Like he... he that, that guy is just a freak of nature. Like in, in his prime at Liverpool in that 2013-14 season, he was, and then a couple of seasons after Barca, he's the only player, I think, until Lewandowski recently, who really rivaled Ronaldo and Messi consistently for, um, for their figures. Yeah. And I think on a technical level, I think Mo Salah himself would admit that he's not the most technical of players. Um you know, he's, he's very efficient and, you know, a really good finisher, but he's not the most technically gifted. Whereas Suarez, right foot, left foot, header. Like, the guy scored a header from outside the box, for God's sake, <laughs> off an Ali Sissoko cross. That should be illegal. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, like, I, I think just purely on how technically gifted he was, like, they're a pretty similar level in terms of goal scorers, and it's more impressive from Salah that he's going off the right. But just purely on how good technically he was, I'd go Suarez as my best, I think, in the Premier League era. Yeah, and just bring you back to the to the, the contract situation a little bit. Yeah. Um, obviously, you'd expect he'd be on big money and he'd probably, this next contract, if as you'd expect it to happen, he'd be the highest, probably the highest paid player in the history of Liverpool, you imagine. You imagine, it, it, what's he on now? Around 200000 a week? So it'd probably be... I mean, Plus that. Like that, yeah. So he probably, says he's on, you know, around 300, 400, if that's the figure. Are we, are we worried that FSG might, <laughs> FSG might try and pull a fast one with him? You know, being twenty nine, getting to that stage of his career where FSG, not I'm pretty sure Klopp and Liverpool fans would disagree, but the kind of data driven approach they might think is he, is his, is his numbers going to start declining? There's no evidence of that, but. I don't know if there's a little bit of a, a worry in Liverpool's fans' minds about if that might be something that happens. Yeah, I. The, my issue with this blanket rule of 30 is that there's always room for change. I mean, you know, Gareth Bale's gone into his 30s and he's nowhere near the player that he was, what, 10 years ago? Oh, maybe not 10, but certainly um, seven or eight. Um, yeah. uh, he's... But then you've got Ibrahimovic, who's nearly 40, and he's still leading the line for AC Milan and doing a really good job of it. Cristiano Ronaldo's, you know, past 35, and he's still he's still an unbelievable Elite. player. You can't just blanket say we're not giving massive contracts to people over 30. Mo Salah looks after himself as well as anyone in football. The guy is a physical phenomenon. Like, 
Jesus, all you have to do is look at that famous goal that he scored um, against Manchester United in the title-winning season. See that bloke with his shirt off and tell me that he's not going to be in peak physical condition in his 30s. Yeah. That guy is so yeah, ripped, it's ridiculous. Obviously, that is not the only indicator that someone's going to be a good player. I'm sure that Gareth Bale's in very good shape as well. But, um, yeah, he's. I mean, Mo Salah doesn't look like he's going to slow down going into his 30s. I mean, I've even seen, like, for this is a bit more of an indie reference, but Antonio Di Natale, the old Udinese striker, he, his peak years were when he was, like, 33 or 34. He was playing for yeah. the Italian national team in the Euros. Like, you know. You can't just say someone's going to be over at 30. And Mo Salah is one I would put a very high bet on saying that he'll still be a top-level player when he's 33, 34. So if that's the case, give him the contract. I mean, don't be stupid either. Like If he asks for half a million pounds a week, then you have to, you know, either negotiate or you have to ask the question. Because what we can't do is completely... We don't have that much money as it is. So if we completely break our wage structure and ruin any possible negotiations going forward, then you have more of an issue. But if you can get an agreement for anything around 350 grand a week or under, given the current market, then I think you have to take it, really. I mean, you can't, I don't think anyone in that squad could argue with Mo's contribution as a forward. And also as a sort of standard bearer for Liverpool Football Club in the same way Gerrard um, was, like players are going to want to play with Mohamed Salah. They're going to want to play with Virgil van Dijk. Um, so, yeah, I think if that's the case, give him the contract, really. I mean, as I said, don't be really stupid about it. But, you know, if the opportunity is there, we have to. Yeah, I think, I think FSG despite their faults will recognise his value as well he's more valuable to have him as an asset at the club especially with his global you know reach like the man's been on the front of like Time magazine since he's been at Liverpool you know he's been he's been talked about on American chat shows like when does that ever happen he's a massive global brand as well as probably the best footballer I guess you'd say at the club and I think sometimes a lot of I saw Jamie Carragher talking about this last night and he was saying, when you think of Liverpool's success in the Klopp era, a lot of people attribute it to Alisson and Van Dijk signings because we were really good going forward for a long time, but we needed that centre-half and goalkeeper to really be the final pieces of the puzzle. But he was saying that Salah is you know, basically just as important as those two because he's the one that's came in and he's, he's been top scorer basically every single year. He's never injured. He's consistent. If he goes a few games without a goal, you don't need to worry because he'll always, I think his biggest goal drought is like, you know, maybe not four games or something like that. He, he, he scores almost every other week. So whatever he's asking for, as long as it's not stupid money. And to be honest with you, I don't think Salah's a money-orientated guy. Maybe he could look at some of the other super clubs in the world and ask the question, but who, who would even afford him? Because you're not going to sell him to another Premier League club. So that's basically just PSG with the, the Spanish clubs, I don't think would be able to afford him anyway. So, yeah, and I, I wouldn't put it past him to do a similar thing to like a Ronaldo where he's playing in his mid-30s with the condition he keeps himself in. So, fingers crossed, he signs a new deal. And I think it I think it will happen. They, they obviously 
ended up giving Henderson the contract, didn't they? And he's oh, a bit older. So I don't think it's a once you get to 30, you're ruled out situation. I think they'll look at it and see his value to the club commercially and on the pitch and, and common sense will prevail and it will get done. It just might take a little bit what uh, a little longer than, than some of the others we've seen in recent weeks, just because it probably is the biggest one the club have ever done. The second goal was obviously Fabinho. Um, I'd just like to talk a little bit about that Fabinho and Thiago kind of partnership in that midfield. They seem to have really blended together really nicely since this season's started. And we saw, you know, flashes at the end of last season. Now we've got a more settled defence. We know how good Fabinho particularly has been and how crucial he's been to Liverpool since joining. But Thiago as well looks right at home now, I think. Yeah, I mean... Thiago is just he's ridiculously gifted like the guy the guy's technique is well he's the most technical player in the team even ahead of Alexander Arnold like I I don't think even Alexander Arnold would argue with that he's ridiculously good technically and what what I like about him is that his head is always on a swivel he always knows what's going on around him um and he's his ability to just sort of drop off into space away from the Leeds man-marking system and just pull players all over the place and then just find those gaps was just fantastic over the weekend. And now that he doesn't have to do the six role and sort of cover everyone, because um, Flaminio's there just doing his Dyson thing, um, he's, he's getting to showcase his full talents. Um I think where he's going to be much more important, though, is in Europe. I think having Thiago in Europe is going to be massive. Yeah. Because so much of European football, especially with two-legged ties, is about being able to dictate the tempo of the tie, dictate the momentum of it. Because I I think more than anything, I think European ties are momentum-based. You know, with the crowd getting behind you and knowing that you've got the ticking clock. And Thiago is that guy who can put his foot on the ball and just find space, slow the slow the game down if he needs to, speed it up if he needs to, find that pass. I think it's a really, really promising combination. Um, I think the one thing that is needed now that Elliot is out is we need Henderson or Cater or Oxlade Chamberlain or whoever it is to make those runs and try and create the gaps for Thiago to find people um, with his balls in behind. Um, I think Hendo will do that, but I don't think he's quite the same level as Elliot, obviously, in terms of, you know, being able to find those little gaps and pockets of space. But it's something we've seen Cater is really good at. So I have a sneaking suspicion if Henderson isn't quite fit to play 90 minutes, which he doesn't seem to be yet. Um because he's got I, I don't think he's played a full 90 yet this season. Um, no, I don't I don't I don't recall he's unless I it was against Burnley, but I think he might have come off against Burnley. Um, yeah I can't remember he definitely you know he didn't play against Norwich he didn't he came on against Leeds uh, I think he started against Chelsea but he came off so yeah I think he's been rotated quite a lot. Um so I wouldn't be surprised to see Cater come in against um, against Milan, try and open them up a little bit, um, maybe get some space uh, in behind Theo Hernandez if he um, if he pushes up 
a lot. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential in this midfield partnership with those two. And then the third man's just got to do his job and be the most attacking of the three, I think. Yeah, uh, that's the only slight worry for me is, is the same is now that Elliot's out, which seems mad to say how <laughs> crucial we think we're talking about Elliot's involvement in the team after he's basically only played three games for the club. But who is going to going to do that job because the Henderson, Fabinho, Thiago, you probably would say is your best best midfield, but you don't necessarily have a massive goal threat or creative threat there. So it would just be interesting to see how we kind of deal with that. And I think Cater, if he can stay fit, and I know we said, we've said this on this podcast many times before, if he can stay fit, could have a big, big part to play now, particularly that Elliot's um, out. The third goal was Sadio Mane, and God love him, he tried, didn't he, to get it. He got got it in the end. He missed a couple of absolute... Well, he missed one absolute sitter where Jota plays it, I think. I've seen a few people criticising Jota's pass, but for me, you, you still expect Sadio Mane to put that away. There's the other one where he's dilly-dallied on the ball and in basically a two-on-one situation, and somehow... I think it might have been Strauch again as he's got a toe on it when he has eventually got it across to across to Salah. But he did seem that clinical was not the word for Sadio Mane on the weekend. He should have had probably two or three, really. Are we worried about Sadio Mane's form? We spoke about this last year a lot where he was clearly, his form was off last season, but we kind of put that down to a lot of different factors, the uns, you know unsettled team lack of the crowd, the way Liverpool season went generally went badly last year and a lot of them underperformed. But Mane doesn't seem to necessarily have started this season in blistering form. He's got two goals. So, you know, he, st- he still is scoring. He scored it in 50% of the games. But are we a little bit worried about him in terms of the whole season? I have less of an issue now with Mane than I did in sort of February um, time for the simple reason that I think Mane's looking much better and much more energetic than he was. Um, yeah, his decision making in the final third is still not quite there, um, and his finishing is a bit off. But to be perfectly honest, like some of the blocks and some of the saves that were going in, I thought he was cursed. Um, because for a couple yeah. of them, I don't think he did anything wrong, I think they were just unbelievable blocks and tackles. like um, the one you're referring to where I think it was Strout got the ball to it, that was an unbelievably good tackle um, to get the ball off in there. And I think that... I it think was. He I just felt like he held on to it too long, didn't he? Yeah, he. I, I think because he's going through a bit of a crisis of confidence in front of goal, um, that I think he's sort of tried to not walk it into the net, but he's trying to sort of get yeah. himself in the best position where he can take the shot on. Like, there was one... He was running towards the sort of right edge of the box. It was in the second half. And there was an instance, he got one-on-one with Melio and Melio saved it. And there was an instance, it was towards the edge of the box. And 2018-19, Mane would have just hit it from the edge of the box first time. But he, he got too close to Melio, who made the save. Bigger and time. I think I think give him a bit of time and get him scoring a couple goals, I think that will come because he's... Play his dribbling is so good, his strength, his speed. I think he's beating players again, which is something that we didn't see enough of last season. But you know, he he was running all over the place, like uh, all over the place, I should say. <laughs> um, and um, I think it was um uh might have been Stuart Dallas tried to um pin him in midfield um and 
Mane just rolled him like he wasn't oh. there. He's so immensely strong. The and movement I think, was really good. Yeah, I think that's why I'm not as worried because I think his overall play is much higher than it was. Because mm. um, he recovered a bit towards the end of last season as well. He scored a couple of goals. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think we'll be okay. Whether I think he's going to... I don't think he's going to win the golden boot, but, you know, I, I think that we'll start seeing him sort of hitting that. If he fits 15 Premier League goals this season, which I think he's perfectly capable of doing, I'll be very happy. Yeah, I think for me, the main worry is not necessarily completely Mane central. It's more just if he is going through a bit of a rut or a bit of a bad form, like we've spoken about before, there's, there's no the the there's no options off the bench. Like we didn't have a single forward on the on the bench. We didn't need them on on the weekend because obviously Firmino is injured. But against him, a, a, a difficult, uh, sorry, a more difficult opposition, it may have not been a 3-0 scoreline. It may have been a lot closer and we needed a bit more cutting edge from the bench. We know that Leeds play this kind of frantic style where they'll just commit everyone forward and leave those gaps at the back. So the kind of, the, the style of play that Leeds play under Bielsa kind of suited us because it gave the Mane, Jota and Mane Mane, Jota and Salah plenty of time on the ball to get in, in those in those spaces. Um, there was just so much, so many massive gaps in Leeds midfield and between midfield and, and the defence at times. I just think in closer matches, obviously, hopefully for me, we don't know Firmino's injury, but we just need something to come off the bench and something different. I'm just not sure if we've got if we've got that at the moment. Um, but we'll see. Um, obviously, like you say. Fingers crossed he can get a few goals and we'll go from there. I think I was so glad that he did score, though, because some of the comments on Twitter are absolutely bloody unbelievable underneath Liverpool's official Twitter account and stuff, oh, just saying exactly. he's, he's finished and he's selling. And honestly, I know that Twitter's not a representation of anything, but it can be really infuriating at times. Um, I think another people are just stupid is basically yeah. what I've, is the idea I've ig- come up with, just ig- people are dumb. <laughs> yeah, I think I can agree. It's just ignorance. It's just this FIFA generation about, you know, at risk of sounding about 400 years old. It's the kids these days, they don't have any, they don't know anything other than Ultimate Team, do they? Well, so I, don't, I don't like the kids who are playing <laughs> FIFA at the moment. I remember back in my day. I don't know why I'm from the West Country in this instance, but I am. I thought um, you were from North. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah yeah it's it's the same transfer obsessed stats obsessed um kids like kids jesus christ i sound about nine thousand um but it's just it's so annoying and it's people do you know what it is it's people who use the who use terms like penaldo and pessi um, ratio um, and things like that on social media. I'm just like, can you all just get in the bin, please? I know we're just going to have comments now. He's not, saying... not going to shag you. He's not gonna yeah, he's not going to shag you. Like, Jesus Christ. It's just... Yeah. And it's people like that. And it's people... I, I read this fantastic article. I can't remember who it was by. I really want to give him... Um, I really want to give him props. But whoever it was, well done to you, sir, because... He wrote a fantastic article um, looking at uh, looking at basically the modern Liverpool fan and how they're sort of yeah. 
totally allergic um, joy on social media. I will find this article, listeners, and I will give this guy credit before the end of the episode because it's a brilliant read. Was it Dean Van? um... Oh, it was. Yeah, yeah. Dean Van... D. Van Nguyen, I'm going to say, and I'm very sorry for the pronunciation. If you haven't read this article, listeners, read it. It is absolutely fantastic at pinpointing the the genuinely horrifying nature of some fans on social media. I think my, something you pointed out, which is something I never really thought about, but people who refer to top reds and bottom reds, which blows my mind that we're somehow segregating fans into some sort of like race or something. Um, uh, These people take the piss out of the Scouse accent when they're Liverpool fans. And I'm just like, like saying, oh, Naby Keita, three out of 10 la. Like, you know, I think think they're taking the piss out of Red Men TV, but it's just... You know, get it a bin, honestly. It's ridiculous, this weird it's obsession with it. type of people that will... I've seen tweets saying, I hope we finish outside the top four just so FSG can see, you know, literally wishing your team will lose because it doesn't suit your current... Like, we all want new sign-ins and we all want investment in the team. We all want to see progression. But to actively want your team to lose just to kind of evidence and, and support your own opinion is just baffles me i don't don't get it I, I, just, I just want liverpool to win whoever's on the pitch to be honest well it's the question as well of like these people are saying oh we need new owners we need like you know someone's got to buy the club and do all this i have a question for these people who is going to come in spend the 80 hundred million pounds that you apparently want them to spend every single summer without fail no matter what the financial um situation is and not expect any money out of the club and not take any money out of it who is also going to not furlough staff and commit fully to liverpool's ideals and spread the brand and increase its commercial value and is also a really ethical and nice person let me tell you guys this person does not exist well i had a conversation with someone on twitter and they said oh yeah like i want someone like the leicester owner yeah sick like you know their wage bill is what a fraction of ours. That's the yeah. reason that they can spend, you know, transfer fees and stuff like that. Leicester do not have the same budgetary requirements as Liverpool do. So don't bring owners. Leicester City's owner is a brilliant, has done a fantastic job with that club. But it's it's just ridiculous. It's, it's, it's comparing and, it's comparing apples and oranges. It's this? apples yeah. and oranges. It's it's insane. And I think the other thing that drives me nuts about it is the fact that these people would genuinely be happy to have a shape or, you know, an oil baron or whoever come in and own the club. And I'm just like, you're not supporting the club. You just want success that has been associated with the club to be associated with you. Because if you understood anything about Liverpool's culture, then you wouldn't want that to happen. It's ridiculous. Yeah, well said. Um, so before we move on to the Champions League, a quick look ahead to the next Premier League game. Um, Saturday afternoon, Crystal Palace come to Anfield. They started, a bit, I guess, a bit of a mixed start for Patrick Vieira, but they got a fantastic result against Tottenham at the weekend, didn't they? A 3-0 win and they've signed Edouard from Celtic, who looks like he can really, you know, get the goals that I guess Palace need to kind of keep themselves away from that bottom part of the table. What are we... 
expecting from this one, Max? Because Palace are a team who, I guess they're in a transitional phase after years of kind of stability with Hodgson. They're taking the team in a slightly different direction, which is always a risk. And time will tell how it pans out. So I guess it's a little bit of a difficult one to call, but anything other than three points is obviously going to be a disappointment from our perspective. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, we, we should win this game. Like, it, it, it's now an expectation that Liverpool win games like this. However, I think Patrick Vieira has done a really good job with them. Um, they had a bit of an iffy start, but that happens when you bring in a lot of new players like um, like Crystal Palace have. Um, uh, yeah. I say who's come in, the, um, the attacking midfielder, I think Odson Edouard is going to be an absolute banger of a signing. He was someone who... Um, in our preseason predictions, I said that Brighton should be um, looking at signing as their um, as their striker, mm-hmm. who they, they were linked. Bring in. Yeah. They were linked they heavily, were linked. but it didn't happen. Um, I think he's a brilliant signing for them. Um, who else came in? I think Joachim Anderson from Fulham. He uh, yeah. he joined Connor Gallagher as well. Yeah, Connor Gallagher. He looks fantastic, doesn't he? Um, I think Palace are going to be a real. Um, they're going to be a real banana skin. I didn't really think about them before the season, but I look at the team and they've got a young coach who seems to want to play attacking football. He's got Wilfred Zaha on side, it seems like. Um, uh, he seems quite happy there. Yeah, I think they're a really interesting team. I think that will cause a lot of teams a lot of problems this season. I just hope we're not one of them. Yeah, I think they're one of those, what they've done this summer, moving away from Hodgson, and going to a more, I guess, more progressive coach is how they would they would describe it. I think this was a plan for the owners at Palace for a little while. I think it's not that they were they they were better than Hodgson's style now, they're, but they're now a fully established Premier League team, and they want to take that next step to maybe they know they're not going to be you know competing for the Champions League places anytime soon, but they want to kind of kick on and see how they can keep that stability, but do it in maybe a more attractive way when it comes to style of football. And I think the signings Vieira has made are really, really shrewd. Um, getting Gallagher on loan, I think he showed flashes at West Brom of how good he was, but he probably needed to be in a team that wasn't, basically didn't have any of the ball <laughs> in every single game like they did by the time Allardyce was there. Um, and the centre-half, like Anderson, was really good for Fulham as well. They signed, um, was it Mark... Guy, Gay, Mark Gee from Chelsea. I'm sure on how to pronounce his surname. The, the centre half he was on loan at Swansea last year as well. He looks really good. So it'll be, it, it could be, a, it could be a tricky game for Liverpool, but we should have enough in hopes that hopefully um, we can get the win um, pretty comfortably. Um, but we've got another game before that tomorrow night. AC Milan come to Anfield. What a clash this is! This is this is only the. This is the first time in the history of the game that AC Milan have played a competitive match at Anfield, which seems absolutely baffling. The only two times Liverpool and Milan have met one another have been in Champions League finals. So it really is kind of a meeting of two European European royalty, really. I think Anfield's going to be absolutely rocking tomorrow night. First European game back with fans. Um, I think Milan are allowed fans as well. I think that's been decided now, so... That'd be, you know, good to for the away fans to, to add to the atmosphere as well. But just how important is it to get a good start in this Champions League group? We've spoken at the start of the show about how strong the group is. It's probably the standout group in the whole of the group stages this year. With games in the middle of the group, you know, back-to-back games against Atleti, who, Atletico Madrid, who you label as our toughest opponent. 
how important is it just to get three points on the first match day? Absolutely vital. Um, when we were first talking about the Champions League group, I said that we had to get at least 10 out of 12 points from our fixtures against Milan and Porto. Um, and this has to be a three-pointer. Every game at Anfield, we should be winning in this group, basically. There's no excuses now. You know, fans are back. Um, Virgil's back. All our centre-halves are back. Um, Fabinho back in midfield. Yeah, like, th- this needs to be a win. Milan are going to be missing Zlatan Ibrahimovic, which is going to be a huge um, loss for them. Even though Olivier Giroud's coming in, or should be anyway, they might play Rafael Leal up front, but I think he's played out wide more. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think they played Rebic up front on the weekend. Oh, Rebic could play up front yeah. as well. Yeah, he's a, like they've they've got a lot of decent players, Milan, um, and they they seem to be doing a sort of more upgraded version of Palace and just signing really talented young players and just sort of <laughs> sort of chucking them all into the squad, like Fikayo Tamore, uh, Sandro Tonali, Alexis Salamakas, um, Thea Hernandez. Well, Thea Hernandez is not really anymore because he, you know, matured into a top quality left back. But when they signed him, he was sort of not really proven. They've got some really, really talented young players. Um, Brahim Diaz from Real Madrid as well, the ex-Man um, City boy. Um, yeah, they've just they've just got some really good players. Um, losing Donnarumma is obviously huge. Mike Mike Mignan, I think his um, name is pronounced. I can't. Uh, apologies for any butchering. Um, uh, is obviously a pretty decent keeper himself. Uh, but losing Donnarumma is massive. Like Donnarumma is probably arguably the best goalkeeper in the world at this point. Um, but yeah, this is not going to be an easy match by any means. I think the one thing I would say is that um, with Giroud up front, I think their pressing in the centre-halves is going to be, if he does play, if Rebic doesn't, um, then their pressing is going to be down a bit. And I think that'll give Van Dijk and whoever's partnering him a bit more time on the ball, which for our offence, given um, our being partial to slinging long balls behind the fullback, um, I think could be really important for us. Yeah, Giroud always scores against us, doesn't he, as well? So I wouldn't he does. <laughs> that handsome <laughs> bastard. <laughs> yeah, I actually forgot that he'd even signed for them. I saw, obviously, I was, when I was creating the kind of running order for today's show, I was like, will Zlatan be fit? Will he not be fit? Then so he's not going to be, he's not going to be fit before, just before we came on to record. And then it just remembered that they had Giroud and I was like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> he always scores against us. Um do you think now would be a good time to rotate out Matip? Um, he's been fantastic since the season started. And I think him, the way he brings the ball out from the back is, you know, I think it offers a different dimension to Liverpool's attack down the middle. Most of our creativity comes from those wide areas of the, the fullbacks, but particularly for the first goal, we saw how well he can bring the ball out against Leeds on the, on the weekend, but he's now played four games in a row. He's not done that for a while. Do we need to maybe manage his minutes and it's time to maybe birth Canate? Yeah, I was just about to say that. Um, Canate's dribbling stats, if you look them up, are really high from his time at Leipzig. He loves bringing the ball out from the back. So if you um, if you are going to rotate Matip out, I think Canate would be a perfect person to um, come in and against maybe a team that Liverpool 
should be, even if it's obviously not going to be easy and it'll be up against a very experienced operator, whether it's Rebic or Giroud up front. Um, I think his ability to carry the ball out from defence will be really helpful if he does come in. I don't think Joe Gomez is quite the right profile for um, for this team. Um, he's not quite got the aerial prowess that Canate or Matip do. So, if yeah. especially if Milan do play Giroud, we want someone who's going to be able to beat him in the air. And Virgil... Canate or Matip are our best three for that. I feel I, I feel a bit for Gomez to be honest because it's, it's now yeah. it's it's now gone from a point where we had you know no centre halves to having in all honesty for this game three centre halves who are more so who are more suited um, to this sort of match I think than he is. Um, I really hope that we don't start seeing links with moves away or anything like that for him because I I, I can't get enough of him. I think he's a great player, but. I think for this match in particular, I don't think he's the right profile of centre-half. Because if it is indeed Giroud, as I've seen a lot of reports saying it will be, Giroud is known for many things. He's not known for running in behind and needing great recovery pace to <laughs> to catch him up. And that's Gomez's bread and butter, but he's not yeah. quite the aerial beast that Matip or Van Dijk or even Canate are. So... Yeah, I think it, I think rotating Matt about now would be a good strategy. And I think this is a really good game, just given the profile of players that we're coming up against to bring Canate in. Yeah, I think the problem that you've got with Gomez as well is that we you've basically got one centre half spot rather than two, where you'd have a, a different team because Van Dijk is an absolute hundred percent in every single week, no matter the opposition. Really, Premier League, Champions League, Van Dijk plays so. If he's fit, he plays every he plays all 38 Premier League games and he plays every Champions League game we're in. Whereas in other teams, they maybe will kind of rotate even their partnership a bit more. Maybe not so much, you know, you, you look at Man United and they're always probably going to play Maguire and Varane if fit, but Chelsea rotate a fair bit. Man City, you know, they've got Diaz Laporta and Ake and Stones. They, they, they rotate quite, they can have various different set of that partnerships because Van Dijk is always going to play. And for me, Matip's the best, the best partner. I've not seen, I've not seen any evidence from Canate at all because he's not played. And I, I just genuinely think that Matip is so underrated in the Premier League. And I think even rival fans probably don't actually understand how good Matip is, just because he's he's always injured. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree. I think Canate would be a good time for him to get his first start. And there's a cup game next week against Norwich away, so I'm sure Gomez can will probably be playing in that if he because uh, he hasn't played yet this season. Just one more thing before we leave on this kind of team selection tomorrow. So some people suggesting maybe this season it would be a good idea to get Costas Timikas more minutes. We've seen him obviously play, start the first few games, come on against Chelsea, and he obviously wasn't involved on, on the weekend. But last year, Robertson played almost every single minute, basically, and he has for his national team as well. Some people have even seen suggest that maybe Timikas is going to be the Champions League left-back and Robertson maybe will play the Atletico Madrid games. But... What are your thoughts on? I can tell by your face that you're not gonna, you don't agree. But what are your thoughts on potentially having him, Robertson, not always having to start, being able to trust that Timothy Cass is more than an able deputy, and even though this is a big game, we can trust him to do a job and maybe give Robertson a break now and again. Uh, yeah, I, I have an issue with that because we need, as I've said before, we need to start this. Champions League group with three points. Get, getting momentum going into this is going to be huge. Um, look, 
if it's down the road and we have a bit of a gap and we're playing as Porto at Anfield, then fine. I've no issues with that. But this is a big, big game that we're going into. Um, make no mistake about it going against Milan. And I don't think this is the game to throw um, Simicass into on that stage. Uh, yeah, I mean, Robertson is... <laughs> he's. There's a reason that he's played almost every game since he came in under Jurgen Klopp, and that's because he's world-class, and we need world-class against Milan. Make no mistake, I think anyone who's underestimating Milan going into this and thinking that we can rotate loads of players is asking for a big mistake uh, to happen. And he'll get he'll get games in the Cups. I'm sure that he'll get the odd Premier League game if... Um, you know, especially around the winter time when the fixtures become really congested, he'll probably play a few games. But I don't think now is the time to start rotating Robbo out if he's fully fit. Yeah, I think, and as the as the season progresses, you're more likely to pick up these little knocks and these little strains and these little kind of niggly things that maybe aren't a proper injury. And last season, maybe we'd have played Robertson just because we had no fit defenders, but now we've seen a bit of what Simakas can do. When those situations do arrive, in slightly less high-pressured circumstances, Klopp will probably be a bit more comfortable putting him in. So we'll have to see. But um, that brings us to the end of this week's show. So Max, thanks for your time as usual. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have a chat with you, my friend. Um, even if a certain someone has left us in the lurch and we yeah. will never, ever forgive him, I'm sure. But um, I've had a good time with you, better than I would have with him anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably not even listening to this anyway. He's yeah, I know. Different. The yeah. absolute traitor. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll be back next week. James will probably be back next week as well, so expect a lower quality podcast. Yeah, um, I'll let him back, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but until then, there's plenty of content you can get from us here at Anfield Central on our website, anfieldcentral.co.uk. We've got stories going up there all the time. And on our Twitter, Anfield underscore Central. So until next week, fingers crossed for three points tomorrow and goodbye.